Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. is Democracy Now! During the trial, the government's evidence showed that almost immediately following the November 2020 election, defendant Stuart Rhodes, the founder and leader of the Oath Keepers, began planning to oppose by force the peaceful transfer of power. For the first time in nearly 30 years, a federal jury convicted two defendants of seditious conspiracy, the crime of conspiring to overthrow the U.S. government. We'll get an update. Then, what are Democrats trying to pass in the lame duck session of Congress before losing their majority in the House? We'll speak with American Prospect Editor David Diane. Democrats uh, have a few options for the lame duck session, but the biggest thing is just funding the government so it doesn't shut down after December 16th. And uh, there isn't a lot of uh, uh, cooperation being done right now in Congress. We could see a full year continuing resolution to fund the government at current levels, which would be the first uh, effective uh, cut or at least not an increase to the military budget in I have no idea when. And back in New York City, Mayor Eric Adams announces police will start hospitalizing people with mental illness against their will, even if they pose no threat to others. A common misunderstanding persists that we cannot provide involuntary assistance unless the person is violent, suicidal, or presenting a risk of imminent harm. This myth must be put to rest. We'll get response to the mayor's plan from New York City public advocate Jamani Williams and activist Jawanza Williams, who have both called for replacing police with mental health workers when someone's experiencing a mental health crisis. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The House has passed legislation to block a nationwide rail strike by imposing a contract that's been rejected by unions representing the majority of freight rail workers. In addition, the House passed a separate bill by a much narrower margin to give seven days paid sick leave to railroad workers, but it remains unclear if this provision will pass in the Senate. The vote came two days after President Biden pushed Congress to prevent the strike. On Wednesday, Senator Bernie Sanders slammed railroad carriers for refusing to provide workers any paid sick days while their profits soar. Do we stand with workers in the rail industry and say, yes, you are right. Working conditions are horrendous. We cannot continue a process by which you have zero paid sick leave. Do we stand with workers or do we stand with an industry that is making huge profits, pays its CEOs exorbitant salaries, and treats its working workers with contempt. 
In other news from Capitol Hill, House Democrats have unanimously elected Hakeem Jeffries of New York to lead the caucus, making him the first African-American to head a political party in Congress. Jeffries, who is 52, will succeed Nancy Pelosi, who led House Democrats for two decades. Congressman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez said the party could have benefited if the election to lead the party was contested, saying, quote, this is the most significant generational change that we've seen in House Democrats in several decades. I personally believe that we would benefit from a debate on what that means, she said. While Jeffries is a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, he's been at odds with some progressives in the House. In 2016, he backed Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. Last year, he told The Atlantic, quote, there will never be a moment where I bend the knee to hard-left democratic socialism, he said. On Wednesday, Democrats also elected Catherine Clark of Massachusetts to serve as whip and Pete Aguilar of California to serve as chair of the party caucus. Meanwhile, House Democrats have finally obtained Donald Trump's tax returns, ending a multi-year court battle. The Treasury Department released them to the House Ways and Means Committee Wednesday. In China, authorities have lifted some of the strictest lockdown restrictions in parts of Shanghai and Guangzhou as protests are continuing over the country's zero-COVID policy. Video from Guangzhou, a major manufacturing hub, show police in hazmat uniforms confronting protesters. Russia is poised to expand its 2013 anti-LGBTQ law banning so-called gay propaganda. The law seeks to prohibit movies, advertisements, websites and books featuring same-sex relationships or transgender characters in a positive light. Individuals found to be in violation of the law could be fined over $6,000. President Putin's expected to soon sign the law, which was approved by lawmakers. This is Ksenia Mihalova of the Russian LGBTQ support group coming out. This is a signal that all the types of violence against LGBT people are allowed by the state. Um, how it already happened in 2013, when it was a wave of hate crimes against LGBT. Now it will be a tsunami. Israeli authorities arrested the prominent Palestinian activist Issa Amro on Monday, days after he posted videos showing an Israeli soldier throwing an Israeli activist to the ground, then punching them in the face in the city of Hebron in the occupied West Bank. Before he was released, Amro was reportedly beaten at the police station before he was interrogated. His home was also raided. Amro is the founder of Youth Against Settlements. On Wednesday, the Israeli activist Miko Peled tweeted, quote, Issa's life is in danger. There must be guarantees to his personal safety, he said. Meanwhile, Israeli forces have killed another two Palestinians during a raid in the Janine refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. According to Al Jazeera, Israel's now killed eight Palestinians over the past three days in the West Bank. A U.S. citizen who lives in Massachusetts has been arrested on a trip to the United Arab Emirates and faces possible extradition to Egypt after he made a video calling on Egyptians to protest during the recent U.N. climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. The 46-year-old Sharif Osman is a former Egyptian army officer who has become a vocal critic of Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Osman was arrested by two plainclothes officers in UAE November 6, two days after he arrived from the United States. 
The Biden administration's attempt to cancel hundreds of billions of dollars in student debt has been dealt another setback. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has rejected a request by the Biden administration to put on hold a ruling against the plan by a judge in Texas. The issue will likely now go to the Supreme Court. In a major victory for immigrant rights activists, the federal government has announced it's closing the Burks Detention Center in Pennsylvania. Groups including the Shutdown Burks Coalition have organized for years to close the facility, which was once used to imprison families as they sought asylum. Most recently, Burks was used as an immigrant women's prison. The Los Angeles Times has revealed ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, accidentally posted detailed personal information online about more than 6,000 asylum seekers in the United States. Immigrant rights advocates fear the unprecedented data release could jeopardize the lives of many immigrants who came to the U.S. fleeing torture and violence. A group of Yale students are suing the Ivy League University for discriminating against students with mental health challenges. The lawsuit alleges Yale pressures students to take voluntary leaves of absence if they're experiencing significant symptoms of mental health disabilities while suggesting the students might otherwise be suspended. Students who take leave, either voluntarily or involuntarily, often lose parts of their tuition and accommodation payments as well as access to student health insurance. The founder of the website Cryptome.org has written to the U.S. Justice Department with a strange request. He's asking to be indicted for violating the Espionage Act. Cryptome's founder, John Young, says he should be added as a co-defendant in the prosecution of WikiLeaks' Julian Assange because he published the same leaked government documents at the center of the U.S. case against Assange. While Julian Assange faces 175 years in U.S. prison if he is extradited and convicted, the U.S. government has never moved to prosecute John Young, who says he published the documents two days prior to WikiLeaks. Earlier this week, The New York Times and Foreign international newspapers called on Biden to drop the charges against Assange, saying publishing is not a crime. President Biden announced new investments for indigenous communities, including $135 million to help 11 tribal communities severely impacted by climate change. Three of those communities are planning on relocating altogether. Biden spoke Wednesday at the White House Tribal Nations Summit. There are tribal communities at risk of being washed away, washed away by superstorms, rising sea levels and wildfires raging. President Biden also vowed to protect Spirit Mountain, or Avi Kwaame, in Nevada, a sacred site for the Fort Mojave tribe and others. Advocates have been pushing for years to designate the area as a national monument. The Justice Department is suing Jackson, Mississippi, over its failure to provide its 150,000 majority black residents with safe drinking water. This is Attorney General Merrick Garland speaking on Wednesday. Communities of color, indigenous communities, and low-income communities often bear the brunt of these harms. As we work to fulfill our responsibility to keep the American people safe, to protect civil rights, we will continue to prioritize cases like this one that will have the greatest impact on communities most burdened by environmental harm. 
On Tuesday, the city of Jackson and the Mississippi Health Department agreed to federal oversight of its crumbling water system. In August, city officials issued boil water advisories across Jackson that lasted nearly seven weeks. In Pennsylvania, the fracking company Cotera Energy has agreed to pay $16.2 million after pleading no contest for polluting the water in and around the community of Dimmock. Cotera, which was previously known as Cabot Oil and Gas, will also pay water bill payments for the impacted residents for the next 75 years. The 2022 Right Livelihood Awards were given out Wednesday at a ceremony in Stockholm, Sweden. The award is widely known as the Alternative Nobel Prize. Winners included the Somali activist Ilwat Elman, who is recognized along with her mother for their work to bring peace in Somalia. Somalia right now is facing the worst drought in the last 40 years. More than a million people are already internally displaced. If immediate action is not taken, we are on the brink of a famine. Other winners of the 2022 Right Livelihood Awards included the Ukrainian group Center for Civil Liberties, led by Alexandra Matvichuk, the Venezuelan collective Siko Sesola, and the Ugandan Africa Institute for Energy Governance. Visit democracynow.org to watch the Right Livelihood Awards ceremony. And today marks World AIDS Day. U.N. AIDS is calling for a renewed push to combat the HIV virus after the world turned its focus to COVID-19 and other global crises over recent years. One and a half million new HIV infections were recorded in 2021, one million more than the global target of half a million, with an estimated death toll of 650,000. U.N. AIDS also reports dangerous inequalities persist with girls and young women especially at risk. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. For the first time in nearly 30 years, a federal jury has convicted two defendants of seditious conspiracy, the crime of conspiring to overthrow, put down or destroy by force the government of the United States. Jurors in Washington, D.C. Tuesday found Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes guilty of seditious conspiracy for plotting to keep Donald Trump in power after the 2020 election, resulting in the deadly January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Kelly Meggs, who led the Florida chapter of the Oath Keepers, was also convicted of seditious conspiracy. Three other insurrectionists, Jessica Watkins, Kenneth Harrelson and Thomas Caldwell, were found guilty of other felonies. Attorney General Merrick Garland praised the verdicts Wednesday. During the trial, the government's evidence showed that almost immediately following the November 2020 election, defendant Stuart Rhodes, the founder and leader of the Oath Keepers, began planning to oppose by force the peaceful transfer of power. With Rhodes, defendants Kelly Meggs, Kenneth Harrelson, Jessica Watkins, and Thomas Caldwell communicated and planned to travel to Washington on or around January 6, 2021. On January 6, as the government's evidence showed, defendants Meggs, Harrelson, and Watkins forcefully breached the U.S. Capitol wearing paramilitary gear while defendants Rhodes and Caldwell remained outside on the Capitol ground coordinating activities. Last evening, a jury of the defendants' peers found each of them guilty of serious felony offenses. As the verdict of this case makes clear, 
The department will work tirelessly to hold accountable those responsible for crimes related to the attack on our democracy on January 6, 2021. That's Attorney General Merrick Garland. The Oath Keepers verdict could give momentum to cases against other major players behind the push to keep Trump in power. For more, we're joined by Kristen Doerr. Uh, she's managing editor of Right Wing Watch. Kristen, welcome back to Democracy Now! Talk about the significance of these convictions for seditious conspiracy and what this means. Thank you for having me, Amy. I mean, as you noted, um, this is the first time in about 30 years that we've had uh, a guilty verdict when it comes to seditious conspiracy. Um, it's very notable. It's a win for the Justice Department. And it also sends a message that illegal actions against the government uh, will not go unpunished. And I would say there are so there are also uh, a number of other oath keepers who are charged with seditious conspiracy who are going to trial next week and uh, members of the Proud Boys, another far right extremist organization, are also um, being charged with seditious conspiracy and they go to trial December 12th. This sends a message to those um, who have pled not guilty. Um, that they have a tough trial ahead of them and that a jury has already found um, similar uh, insurrectionists guilty. And so it'll be interesting to see whether uh, these uh, defendants decide whether, whether they want to cooperate with the federal government and uh, prosecutors um, or whether they will continue to plead not guilty. Uh, so tell us who Oath Keepers are and specifically its founder, Stuart Rhodes, who was convicted. Right. So the Oath Keepers is a far-right extremist organization. It's a anti-government uh, organization fashioned as a militia. It was founded in 2009 by Stuart Rhodes. Um, and the, the organization is extremely conspiratorial. Um, they believe that the federal government is out to uh, take away Americans' freedoms and essentially enslave Americans. Um, and they often pitch—this um, is often the pitch that they give recruits, and they heavily recruit from former law enforcement, uh, current and former law enforcement and military. And tell us more about Stuart Rhodes' background, and also Kelly Meggs, who was also convicted of um, seditious conspiracy, head of the Florida chapter of Oath Keepers. Right. So Stuart Rhodes is um, former military. He also— uh, was a big uh, Rand Paul fan, um, and Ron Paul, I should say. And um, he is also a Yale uh, law graduate. Um, and he has long been involved in this anti-government extremist movement. Um, and uh, he founded this uh, the organization again in 2009, and it was kind of in reaction to the um, election of President Barack Obama. And what was he saying then? Um, again, this was, you know, he has a very anti-government um, message and this belief that um, the federal government is being taken over uh, by the so-called deep state and um, that Americans need to, um, you know, the, they need to protect their freedoms and their enemy is the federal government. Now, that all changed when Trump came into power. 
Um, they then align themselves with Trump and with the Trump administration. Um, and that's what we saw, you know, ahead of the, um, the Capitol insurrection. What we ended up seeing was that there was this, um, you know, alliance that they, um, and allegiance that they had towards Trump, um, and just wanted to keep Trump in power. So, um, if you can talk about um, the encrypted message he sent to his reporters after Biden was elected, um, saying, we aren't getting through this without a civil war. Mm-hmm. And then in his opening statement, uh, the attorney for Oath Keepers, leader Stuart Rhodes, said that he and his subordinates had never planned an attack against the government, but instead were waiting for Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act. Explain also what that means. Right. So first thing I'll say is that Stuart Rhodes has long been obsessed with this idea of civil war. Um, and so shortly after, um, you know, in, in early November, he was already calling for the potential use of force um, to keep Trump in power, claiming that he had been illegally, uh, claiming falsely that he had been illegally, um, had lost the election and was going to be illegally removed from office. Um, and so... He very blatantly and out in the open, uh, you know, in December, uh, early in December, he ended up talking uh, to a so, um, a rally uh, on the National Mall in which he called for bloody war should Trump not invoke the Insurrection Act. And so he was both calling for Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act and trying to use that as cover uh, to justify any violent actions that the Oath Keepers would end up taking. And so... You know, he was calling for the use of the Insurrection Act from very early on, but there were also, um, you know, uh, video or audio recordings and messages in which um, it was very clearly said that this, um, the Insurrection Act, the calling Trump to have an Insurrection Act would be try to be used as cover for any violent actions that the Oath Keepers ended up taking. Um, Earlier this year, a report revealed that more than 370 law enforcement professionals appear to be linked to the Oath Keepers. The Anti-Defamation League found the names among some 38,000 listed as members in a leaked Oath Keepers membership list. They include police chiefs and sheriffs and more than 80 people who are either running for public office or already serving as elected officials. The significance of this— it's very significant. It's also not very surprising in some sense. And this is because the Oath Keepers, they often recruit from former and current law enforcement and military. And again, they come with the, uh, to these recruits and they say, you know, the only people who can protect us from the federal, federal government is law enforcement and military. We need your skills. Um, and that's that's exactly it. They also want these tactical skills that law enforcement in the military have. It's very concerning. There's also um, the Oath Keepers also have connections to an anti-government sheriff's organization um, that sees the sheriff as the supreme power of the land. Um, and they don't see the federal government. They believe that the sheriffs have more power than the federal government. And so there are a number of sheriffs who also abide by this extremist ideology, and it should be very concerning. A, um, a badge is not a shield uh, to, to shield you from accountability. Um, and so we, we have to make sure that we um, are holding people accountable and that uh, our law enforcement are abiding by 
um, you know, the the government and the rules that we all follow. I wanted um, to add, as, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, as far as um, the elected officials, the, there are a number of people who um, are members of the Oath Keepers at the state level and at the local level. And this is because oftentimes these um, individuals do not have as much scrutiny on them. And so they're you know, able to hold these um, membership affiliations. And so that's where we see people like, you know, um, Arizona's uh, Arizona State Senator Wendy Rogers and Arizona State Representative Mark Fincham, um, you know, claim that they are members of the Oath Keepers. I wanted to ask you about Donald Trump facing growing condemnation from even Republicans or certain ones for hosting the white supremacist Nick Fuentes at his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida last week. Fuentes is a Holocaust denier, a well-known racist. He dined with the president, along with rapper Kanye West, who was suspended from Twitter last month for making anti-Semitic comments. You noted in a tweet, Kristen, 57 Republican lawmakers were asked if they condemned Trump's dinner with white nationalist Nick Fuentes. Only 18 responded. Some failed to condemn it. Um, the significance of this, I mean, nothing loses like failure um, because of the number of people People that Trump endorsed in the election that failed. You see a number of Republican senators like Romney um, and others uh, condemning President Trump for hosting this dinner. Trump has yet to apologize for this. Fuentes was at the 2017 Unite the Right rally in, um, in Charlottesville, Virginia. Talk about who he is and the meaning of this, uh, the man running for House Speaker, um, Kevin McCarthy, interestingly, has yet to fully condemn Trump for hosting him. Yep. So Nick Fuentes is a well-documented white nationalist, misogynist, Christian nationalist. Um, he's very anti-democratic, and he has an authoritarian vision uh, for the United States. And we can say that he's well-documented because Right Wing Watch has been covering this day and day, um, you know, every single day, trying to make sure that it's known that Nick Fuentes is a white nationalist. And so Trump having him at a dinner uh, is very significant. It's also been reported that Trump uh, spoke fondly of Nick Fuentes and said, I like this guy. Um, and it's it's very significant that Trump has not disavowed having, you know, Nick Fuentes or, um, you know, apologized for having dinner with him. The fact that there have been a number of Republicans who have come forward and denounced it, but it's taken too long. The fact that Mike Pence took a number of days before he denounced Trump for holding this dinner um, is, is disappointing. Um, and there's a number of Republicans who still haven't responded and denounced Trump for dining with a white nationalist. Uh, that should be concern to, uh, to all of us. And the other thing I will say is that white nationalists are seeing this lack of denunciation, their refusal to denounce Trump or this dinner as a tacit endorsement. And we have to be very careful. Um, you know, there is, there is no room, there's no excuse for white nationalism, white nationalism, anti-Semitism, and it should be, you know, it should be problematic. Um, uh, we should hold every um, elected official who has a dinner with somebody uh, like that accountable. 
uh, Fuentes uh, was at the riot on January 6th, so he said he didn't go inside. He wore mm -hmm. a VIP badge to Trump's speech, addressed supporters outside the Capitol during the insurrection, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, and was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. Correct. Well, Kristen Dorr, I want to thank you for being with us, managing editor of Right Wing Watch. Uh, we will continue to cover these trials. Next up, we're going to look at what the Democrats have passed and are trying to pass in the lame duck session of Congress before losing their majority in the House. We'll speak with American Prospect editor David Day and stay with us. Richter's Infra 4. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we look now at what could happen in these final weeks of the current Congress, which will be a very busy lame duck session as Democrats try to pass as many bills as possible before losing their majority in the House and control of Congress is divided. Wednesday already saw a major changing of the guard in the House when Democrats unanimously elected Hakeem Jeffries of New York as their new leader, making him the first African-American to lead a political party in Congress as he succeeds Nancy Pelosi, who led Democrats there for two decades. Amidst concerns, the Supreme Court may overturn current same-sex marriage protections, the Senate voted Tuesday to pass the historic Respect for Marriage Act in a 61 to 36 vote, which will require the federal government and states to recognize same-sex marriage. On Wednesday, the House passed legislation to block a nationwide rail strike by imposing a contract rejected by unions representing the majority of freight rail workers. It also passed a separate bill by a much narrower margin to give seven days of paid sick leave to railroad workers, but it remains unclear if the provision will pass the Senate. Democrats also face an uphill battle in passing a long-term government funding deal to keep federal agencies operating. To discuss all of this and more, we're joined by David Dayan, executive editor of The American Prospect, who's been following all of this closely. His recent piece headline, Reconciliation is Available to End Debt Limit Hostage-Taking. Before we go to that, let's talk about what they did do this week, David. Um, let's first talk about the Same-Sex Marriage uh, Respect for Marriage Act that was passed by the Senate. Many Republicans joining with Democrats. Talk about what was accomplished in this and what was compromised in this. Yeah, well, as you said, uh, uh, this is uh, a bill that comes out of the Dobbs ruling at the Supreme Court, which was about abortion. But in that, in a footnote, uh, in a concurring opinion, uh, uh, 
Justice Clarence Thomas said that uh, the same logic could be used to take down uh, Obergefell, which is the same sex marriage ruling that allowed for uh, those those marriages to be uh, conducted in the United States. So uh, this bill, as you say, got uh, 12 uh, Republicans in the Senate. An earlier version got 47 House Republicans to vote for it. Uh, and uh, it requires if there is a same-sex marriage that is legally performed in one state, it requires other states to accept that marriage. Uh, that, uh, the, the one thing that it does is it adds a uh, sort of conscience protection that says that this doesn't force any uh, vendor to uh, engage in, in anything that violates their religious beliefs. Um, <clears throat> there's actually a Supreme Court ruling or Supreme Court case uh, in uh, based uh, on a, a situation in Colorado with a graphic designer that uh, is is going to uh, adjudicate this even further uh, and, and say whether that uh, forcing or, or uh, you know, uh, saying that 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 person must create designs for uh, a, a, a same sex wedding violates uh, uh, her First Amendment rights. But uh, certainly this bill will not stand in the way of that. However, it is certainly an advance to codify the protections of Obergefell into uh, federal law. I mean, you had the powerful speech by Tammy Baldwin, the first openly um, LGBTQ senator um, um, elected. I wanted to play a clip of the Wisconsin senator. I want to recognize the millions of same-sex and interracial couples who have truly made this moment possible by living their true selves and changing the hearts and minds of people around this country. Many of these same-sex and interracial couples are fearful. They are worried that the rights, responsibilities, and freedoms that they enjoy through civil marriage could be stripped away. And you have the conservative Wyoming Republican Senator Loomis, who gave a powerful speech on the floor, also supported the Respect for Marriage Act, and said she had been vilified and received enormous amount of hate mail for supporting this act. But I wanted to ask you, David, why we don't see the same kind of passage of a, um, a sort of a Roe v. Wade law passing the Senate. We wouldn't get 12 Republicans for it in the Senate, I think, uh, is the answer to that question. Uh, clearly, there was enough of a coalition built on same-sex marriage to uh, get the necessary support. Uh, that necessary support was probably there before the election. There was some question as to whether Democrats should have put that vote in beforehand so that people like Ron Johnson, who was up uh, in a close race where he only won by one point, in November, uh, would have had to vote on a, a, a pretty uh, controversial position that he held against same-sex marriage, uh, which uh, you know he did in this in this vote uh, this week. Uh, but uh, you know, ultimately, they went with uh, going ahead and, and, and putting it off to after the election. Uh, there isn't a, a coalition of sixty votes right now in the U.S. Senate uh, on on codification of Roe. In fact. Uh, there isn't 50 votes. Uh, uh, Joe Manchin does not support uh, uh, codifying Roe at this time. And they, they held that vote before the election and, and, and he didn't support it.
Can you talk about the vote on the banning of rail workers to strike and the significance of this? I mean, the Biden administration, yeah. of course, loves to tout themselves as the most pro-labor administration, now going against the majority of work unionized workers in passing mm -hmm. this in the House. Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the House did pass a, a second bill uh, that uh, adds seven sick days. But that would, of course, also need to cross a 60 vote threshold in the Senate. And why and would it be a separate bill? I mean, the fact we're coming out of this pandemic that they do not have paid sick leave. Yeah, it's it's quite distressing that uh, you have uh, uh, essentially on call all the time scheduling uh, if, if you're a rail worker in the United States. Uh, the reason that Congress is involved in this at all is based on a 1926 law called the Railway Labor Act, which uh, allows Congress to insert itself into a labor management situation uh, in the case of transportation unions where where shutting them down would affect the nation's commerce. Uh, uh, that that law might have made sense in 20 in, in, in 1926, but I don't think it makes sense now in 2022. Unfortunately, it's the law of the land. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly separating those two pieces of legislation. Uh, now they go to the Senate, allows the Senate to, to approve the tentative agreement, reject the additional sick days and pass that on to the president. Um, this is certainly a, a kind of a no win situation. Uh, nobody wants to see working people who uh, would not be able to get their medicine or not be able to get food uh, suffer as a result. But at the same time, uh, uh, certainly workers uh, in the rail industry effectively have no recourse uh, when Congress can step in and insert the terms of a contract that they rejected. Um, there is one recourse that that the president has, and I hope he takes it. Uh, there's an executive order that mandates that all federal employees give seven sick days to their workers. And it was passed in 2015 under President Obama. And inexplicably, uh, the president uh, at that time exempted the rail industry from that requirement. Uh, and, and Biden could simply redo that executive order and say the rail industry is not exempted and you need to give these seven sick days to your workers. Can you talk about the significance of ha Hakeem Jeffries being elected to replace Nancy Pelosi? I mean, not as House Speaker at this point, because it looks like it will be majority Republican House. But the significance of first African-American to head a party in Congress, also his politics? Well, certainly that's notable, uh, not just because it's, uh, uh, you know, the first African-American to uh, head a political party in the House, but uh, it's a new generation of leadership. The uh, combined, the, the three new leaders, and that includes uh, uh, both Jeffries, Christine Clark, and uh, 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 Pete Aguilar. Aguilar. Yeah, Pete Aguilar. Uh, they're combined 93 years younger than the three outgoing uh, leaders in the Democratic Party. So this is a generational change uh, on policy. I'm not sure it is very much of a change. Uh, uh, you know, Jeffries has been outspoken against uh, progressives. He actually uh, put together a pack with Josh Gottheimer, maybe the most conservative member 
of the House of Representatives uh, on the Democratic side uh, to uh, uh, it was it's called a teen blue pack. And it was designed to protect incumbents from progressive primary challenges. Um, uh, his, his, certainly he's taken tons of money from the financial services sector, his former corporate lawyer, uh, uh, from uh, Amazon. There's a number of, uh, uh, pieces of, uh, donations to Jeffries. Um, so, uh, on, on policy, I'm not sure that there's going to be a whole lot of change on, uh, certainly, uh, on, uh, you know, in terms of generational change, it's, it's, it's a big move. And the significance of the Republicans taking over the House, they've already laid out uh, some of the things they're going to do. They've told the January 6th committee they have to preserve all of their documents, not as if they're going to uh, destroy them. So they would be investigating the investigators, the whole issue of immediately impaneling a group to investigate Biden, possibly impeach him, go after his son, Hunter Biden. Um, uh, Can you talk about what all of this means? Certainly investigations are going to be the major uh, work product of uh, the Republican Congress. It's going to be Benghazi all day, every day. Uh, there, there, there doesn't seem to be much even interest in uh, putting together a, a set of policies. Uh, however, there are these leverage points that uh, Republicans are going to have over the next two years, whether it's when there's a, a, a need to fund the government uh, or a need to raise the nation's debt limit, which is a cap on spending uh, and borrowing, I should say. It's cap on borrowing that the government can undertake. Uh, the, those are going to be the moments when legislation uh, and, and, and policy changes uh, could happen because Republicans are going to hold out on uh, passing those must-pass bills unless they get some ideological change that they require. They, they've been very open about this. Uh, just this week, John Thune, who is number two in the, in the Senate Republican leadership, has said, we're going to use the debt limit to as leverage to try to make changes specifically to entitlement programs, to, to Social Security and to Medicare. And uh, Democrats are kind of sleepwalking through this. They, they, they believe they can win that fight later uh, since it would be very unpopular to make changes like cuts to Medicare and Social Security. Um, but, you know, if if Republicans are taking hostage, essentially, the full faith and credit of the U.S. government and saying you have to cut Social Security in a grand bargain or else we're, we're going to default on the nation's debt, that's something we should take extremely seriously. And, and, and it's something Democrats should make all efforts uh, in this lame duck session to prevent that possibility from happening. And there's a way to do it uh, using the reconciliation function that was used to pass the Inflation Reduction Act with only Democrats in the Senate. Uh, You could use that again to raise the debt limit to such a number that Republicans would not have the opportunity to use it as a hostage-taking situation. And finally, on McCarthy, um, is he going to win for House Speaker and the battle within the Republican Party around his speakership? I mean, he doesn't have the votes right now, and I think he would even acknowledge that you need to 218 votes in order to be elected speaker. And there are several uh, hard right Republican members who have said that under no circumstances they would vote for McCarthy. The problem is they don't have an answer as to what they would do. 
uh, in that circumstance. Uh, uh, there, there doesn't seem to be 218 votes for anybody. And so if this drags on and there are multiple ballots, uh, you could see uh, eventually McCarthy getting forward. It's it's really McCarthy versus nobody. And so you you would think that eventually McCarthy would win that 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 battle, although there there could be a compromise candidate put forward, uh, someone like a Steve Scalise, who's number two in the House Republican leadership. Um, or even someone McCarthy, who's not a, co- a current congressman. Right. A House speaker could be Donald Trump. That is available. I don't think it's going to be Donald Trump, especially <laughs> after this week. But um, uh, that is that is potentially uh, something that could be done, although it, it'd be fairly unprecedented in recent history. Um, I, I think that McCarthy is busy right now trying to make concessions to the far right so that he can capture those 218 votes. Uh, there were a series of uh, House rules that were voted on uh, among Republicans yesterday that, uh, you know, uh, gave them more power, gave more power to block bills or, or, or you know, make sure that they are they, they have a voice in those bills. And so, uh, you know, McCarthy is 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 right now doing this grand search for 218. And uh, who knows what he's going to give away in order to get that power. David Day, I want to thank you for being with us. Executive editor of the American Prospect will uh, your book, Monopolize Life in the Age of Corporate Power. Coming up next, um, we're going to look at what's happening here in New York as rights advocates are alarmed that the mayor, Eric Adams, has announced police will start hospitalizing people with mental illness against their will, even if they pose no threat to others. We'll get response. by Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac's Christine McVie passed away Wednesday at the age of 79. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show here in New York City, where Mayor Eric Adams um, alarmed human rights advocates this week with his announcement police and emergency medical workers will start hospitalizing people who are unhoused with mental illness against their will, even if they pose no threat to others. A common misunderstanding persists that we cannot provide involuntary assistance unless the person is violent, suicidal, or presenting a risk of imminent harm. This myth must be put to rest. The New York Civil Liberties Union responded, quote, the mayor's attempt to police away homelessness and sweep individuals out of sight is a page from the failed Giuliani playbook with no real plan for housing services or supports. The administration's choosing handcuffs and coercion, the NYCLU said. For more, we're joined by two guests. Jamani Williams, New York City public advocate, who's called for non-police responses to non-criminal emergencies and a plan he submitted to Mayor Adams to end systemic homelessness. 
Also with us, Juwanza Williams, director of organizing at Vocal New York, which has long called um, for, quote, caring and compassionate New Deal to address poverty and public health concerns, and supported Daniel's Law, which would work to replace police officers with mental health workers when someone is experiencing a mental health crisis. A uh, name for Daniel Prude, who's the African-American man who was killed by police in Rochester, New York. York, as he was naked outside, they pushed his face into the freezing cold ground, uh, put their knee in their back, in his back for a number of minutes. Jumani Williams, Juwanza Williams, welcome to Democracy Now! Jumani Williams, start off by saying, uh, by responding to Mayor Adams' plan, a plan I think that cities around the country are looking at now. Well, uh, first, thank you so much for having me, and I'm uh, glad to be with Juwanza once. Once I'm with Juwan, I know I'm in the right space, so it's just good to be here. Um, you know, the, the major flag for me is uh, if we know more about uh, people being involuntarily detained by police than we do about the care and, and continuum of care that they're going to receive, that's a major red flag. Um, and we, for too long, have been overly reliant on law enforcement uh, to deal with issues like homelessness and mental health, which are a problem and they can't be ignored because we refuse to invest uh, in what's actually needed to deal with the issues. And as you mentioned, we, we put uh, several plans, actually, the, most, the least last of which was two weeks ago, around how we can address the mental health crisis, making sure that our law enforcement are not the primary responders and certainly not the ones who should be making decisions on whether someone is involuntarily uh, put into a hospital or not. You can only do that for two or three days. Uh, many of the questions has to do with what happens after that. Are they getting the care that they need, the continuum of care they need? And lastly, it seems like we're broadening uh, the definition of who this can happen to. And so we have a lot of questions that we're going to be asking the mayor to answer. How did he respond to the plan that you put forward as public advocate, Germani? Well, you know, we're still waiting to hear uh, an actual response. And I'm not sure if this was a response. And so uh, we want to confirm that uh, the right folks got it. And we believe that they did. Uh, but, you know, I'm one always trying to make sure that we're giving every opportunity uh, for people to respond. Uh, and, you know, we've been talking about these issues, issues for a long time. As a matter of fact, the report we put out two weeks ago was an update to the report that we put out in 2019. And we have uh, done some good things. But quite frankly, in most places, we've actually gone backwards. And even the parts of the plan that uh, there are parts that actually make some sense. But again, uh, the parts that we uh, are happy are in there, drop-in centers and other types of programs, there's no discussion about how much funding will go there, how it will be operationalized, and when it will begin. So talk, talk about the alternative. Talk about the plan you've put forward. We're talking about something like 55,000 unhoused people in New York City. Well, you know, we, we put forth two plans that normally can be talked about together, housing, uh, homelessness, uh, and mental health. Uh, and when it comes to the mental health, you know, in 2019, uh, we had more respite centers than we do now. Uh, we had more beds than we do now. Uh, and so before the pandemic, we had more capacity and we already had issues. Uh, if we have less capacity, can you imagine how much issues we have now? And of, of course, many people who are chronically homeless uh, in, the, in, the, in the street, and we have to make mention that there are many people who are actually working poor and just can't afford a place to live, but there are folks who need additional supports, need supportive housing. 
uh, which we lack very much. And so we have a number of ideas of how to build and preserve um, actual housing that we have now. When it comes to people who are in uh, mental health uh, crisis and need uh, care, we laid out a very concrete plan of how we can build out an infrastructure so people can get the care and the continual care that is needed. That does require funding. That does require investment. Unfortunately, we don't get that. What we often get is if we can't deal with these issues now, we'll send law enforcement to solve the problems that we're failing at. Quite frankly, it's not fair to the law enforcement officer who doesn't have the tools to do this, and certainly not fair to the person who needs uh, the assistance or the community. Um, the new report uh, that you've put out shows it costs 46000 more dollars per year to host a family of three in a city shelter than to provide that family with affordable housing. I mean, again, from San Francisco to Los Angeles to New York, this issue of um, warehoused apartments and uh, houses— that are not used, um, and the crisis of homelessness in this city. If you could talk about what is the path to using that space. You know, it's we put so much money into um, sheltering, quote-unquote, uh, homeless New Yorkers, and I'm sure it's the same in all across the country, than we do in actually housing them. Um, it's a lot of frustration there. We have been trying to battle uh, what we call uh, zombie houses, and warehousing houses that people are uh, keeping off the market. Uh, we do try a lot to make sure that when uh, there's rezonings that happen in the city, that we actually put um, deeply income-targeted affordable housing in those units. But right now, there's something called good cause eviction that's being held up uh, by the governor and uh, by the real estate industry that simply says, and this is all it says, is that if you want to evict someone, you should give a good reason to do so. And we get such pushback on that. That alone could stem the tide of evictions that are going on and stem the increase of homelessness that's going on. We also need to see additional support for uh, people who are, need tenant uh, rental assistance uh, because the type of support that people get now for rental assistance doesn't match where the market is. And uh, New York City is now the most expensive place to rent. It's actually past San Francisco and some other places. Um, but yet we're not doing anything to stem those tides. And the people who make the most money off of this and donate the most money are setting the rules uh, that are unfortunately making it worse. Your report also finds a majority of those in shelters are men, women and families of color, the largest share uh, black, who've come from historically red line neighborhoods, uh, quote, that this city has neglected with its education, environmental health and housing dollars. I wanted to bring in Jawanza Williams um, with that finding and the kind of work you do at Vocal New York and also ask you about the new rules that are banning photos and videos from within the New York City shelter system. Uh, so, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Amy. I deeply appreciate it. And, of course, I deeply appreciate being on the air with um, the Honorable Public Advocate, Jemani Williams. Um, I think the first thing that I've got to say is that Vocal New York, we're a statewide grassroots membership organization building power to end AIDS, homelessness, mass incarceration, and the racist classes, drug war, and to build an economy and a democracy in New York State that works for all of us. And in particular, we organized two issue-based unions, a homelessness union and a civil rights union, made up of people who are directly impacted by these issues, who are politically active and responsible. So a lot of the perspective that I'm holding today is about is coming from the leadership of people directly impacted in these union structures. And I think that the idea that 
uh, we have to, like, that there's new policies banning photography inside of shelters is no surprise to me. I think that the mayor and the administration have a public... Uh, a, 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 a catastrophe um, unfolding for them, you know, politically. This is not good optics for its administration. And I think that the thing at the core that we have to hold is that hiding, disappearing people experiencing homelessness, um, dismantling encampments, you know, preventing people from taking photographs inside of shelters will not prevent um, the truth from coming out. And I think that one of the things that I really want to pull forward into this conversation, and I deeply appreciate um, the number of things that the public advocate is talking about, is that we need to be using phrases and language like mental health complexity. You know, we don't want to individualize all of these phenomena, talking about mental illness for individual people, but thinking about the structural, sociopolitical, cultural framework situation that is exacerbating these issues, like mass homelessness, like problematic drug policy that's criminalizing people. So what we need to see happen is the city of New York, that our mayor is actually responding to the structural phenomena that's exacerbating these things, so that we can actually use our limited resources resources in a more targeted way that actually makes sense. So, you know, a colleague of mine, Selena Trawa, a homeless union organizer, said to me yesterday that the moment that something is coercive, compassion is out the door. And I think that we've got to hold that complexity. And also I need to uplift that, you know, um, the public advocate mentioned people needing rental assistance. We, that the bill that on the state level that we're fighting for right now is called the Housing Access Voucher Program. It's a Section 8 style housing voucher for New York State that would go to people experiencing homelessness, people that are are struggling to pay their rent and also people who are undocumented. So if we are able to pass this bill, we're able to make sure that thousands, tens and tens of thousands of people are able to be stably housed. And that would do a a large amount of work um, responding to the issues that we're experiencing right now in the city. The New York City Department of Education released a report last month um, that nearly 104,000 public school students were unhoused in 2021. That includes living in shelters, in cars, uh, kids doubled with family members or just on the streets. They don't include migrant children who have just been arriving in New York City. What is Mayor Adams doing about this, Juanza? You know, um... Um, Amy, that's a really good question. I'm not totally sure what the mayor's doing about these issues in reality. He's sweeping, you know, encampments. He's talking about involuntarily arresting people to put them into supposed treatment with no real meaningful plan, no pathway, no no commonsensical infrastructure for stabilization, no real promise for supportive housing, no, you know, and, and, and really the smoke and mirrors trick that he's been doing all throughout the year, especially when it came to safe haven, low threshold shelter beds, which were supposed to be single room occupancy options for people that were experiencing street homelessness. He created congregate settings in the middle of a pandemic whenever we know that that system doesn't work for the vast majority of people that are experiencing street homelessness. I haven't heard anything about the children across this city that 100,000 plus children, 5,000 of them not sheltered at all, um, you know, experiencing life like this. And there's no conversation about that. And I think that that's part and parcel to the problem that is is affecting, you know, democracy in the the United States itself. You know, when I think about the fact that we didn't hear anything about the 104,000 children that went to school from a shelter in New York State, in New York City, I'm sorry, from 2021, uh, 
during the gubernatorial debates, during any kind of midterm conversations in the state of New York, there's no meaningful contention with this issue. And I think that it's part and parcel to why we, ca- we have these crises, these concurring crises, like the mental health crisis and like the homelessness crisis. And one thing I do also want to uplift when we're thinking about the long-term future of this city and its people, what story are we telling to the 100,000 children that are experiencing homelessness right now, because many of them are aware that they're homeless, that we're escaping people experiencing homelessness for every violent thing that happens in the city, that we're not actually moving in loving, caring, and compassionate ways, that we're not trying to problem solve at the root, and instead we're using these these narratives and these frameworks that produce vigilantes. For instance, we think about the number of people experiencing homelessness, especially street homelessness, that have been killed in the last couple of years, in the last three years, in Chinatown, across our city. Think about we have the kind seconds. of self-deputization that happens. Well, we want to thank you both for being with us. Jawanza Williams, director of organizing at Vocal New York, and Jamani Williams, the New York City public advocate. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Nina Guster, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff, Tarina Ndura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Asti, Joe John Hamilton. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.